welcome to Anshism. Today on the podcast, we have Simon Baker. Simon is a motorsport enthusiast. Today, he'll tell us about what's it being a student at, at the National Center of Motorsport Engineering at the University of Bolton. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Tell us about your experience. Uh, how did you start this journey? <laughs> It's quite a long story, but I'll yeah. abridge it as best as I can. Um, the very first inspiration for me in being interested in motorsport starts from the 1996 Japanese Grand Prix. Yeah. Although I wasn't in Japan at the time, indeed, at the time of recording, I've yet to travel outside Europe. But my family tuned in to the BBC coverage of the Japanese Grand Prix that year. And hearing not only the sound of the cars, because at the time they had amazing sounding engines, even today they make my, certainly my hair stand up on end when I hear them, but also seeing a British driver become world champion. That was also inspiring. And uh, to say the least, I haven't looked back since. How did you end up, you know, coming at the University of Bolton? Well, it took me a little bit longer to get to university than it did for others. Yeah. Uh, for example, ironically, uh, the thing that held me back academically was only getting a D grade in the General Certificate of Secondary Education, aka GCSE. Yeah. And I needed to do the grade I was do the subject I was short on um, English language like I said ironically enough uh, in order to get the C grade at minimum in order to get into the level of college education that I was aiming at and then on to university I, I sort of aspired to work on cars or the motorsport industry in some capacity That was my goal, but at the time I couldn't see how I was able to do it. And then there was the chance beginning of a vehicle-based technology course at my local college, which was Carshalton College, which is in the town of Carshalton in Greater London. Okay. Just about a 10-minute walk from uh, my hometown of Sutton. For those in Bolton you'll notice my accent is a bit distinctive <laughs> but I joke um, and it was through completing that with the highest grade possible after two and a half years of uh, studying it it was extended an additional half year because it took longer to complete the course than expected but came out with three distinction stars which is the highest grade possible as mentioned already and even before I received that I received an unconditional offer to study at the University of Dalton. Yeah. The chance encounter that led to me sealing my decision after I'd already made the decision, but it made me feel I made the right choice, was when I visited one of the towns that the town of Dalton is twinned with. The host of the, if you understand French, Van Quatre du Mont. Or in or in English, 24 hours of Le Mans. Okay. 
So the town of Le Mans, as you probably know, Ange, is twinned with Bolton along with Paderborn. And it was while in Bol- while in Le Mans that I saw Avenue du Bolton. Okay. <clears throat> Bolton Avenue in Le Mans. <laughs> yeah. And it made me think, ah, oh. so motorsport and Le Mans and Bolton have a connection even deeper than just being twin towns. That's made me want to go there even more. I actually did not know that Bolton has a twin town. How is it being a motorsport engineering student and how's the staff been? What's the atmosphere been like? In truth, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. There is yeah. no such thing in life as an easy course. Yeah. But in a way, that makes it more satisfying. Yeah. So, the staff at the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering, or NCME for short, as we'll call it for the rest of this podcast, I guess. Um, they're, they're not necessarily academic-based. They have had grounding in the motorsport environment. They've seen uh, and competed in various disciplines over the years. Indeed, the head curator of the NCME, a guy called Mark Buzzfield. Yeah. I first heard of him in the late 1990s at the head of the Nissan British Touring Car or BTCC team. And uh, when, not long after I first met him in person, after starting at the uh, university, uh, he joked about how me and uh, my friend Alan knew about more of his time in touring cars than he did and he lived through it well that's quite an interesting story simon for our listeners simplify motorsports what is it what are the different leagues what are the biggest leagues well contrary to how it appears in the press it's more than just putting a driver behind the wheel and expecting them to drive as fast as possible yes it's part of it but the driver is one link the final and most important link in a chain of hundreds hundreds sometimes thousands of people whose job it is ultimately to set the car up as best as they possibly can for the type of uh, configuration they're set out for to use a motorsport phrase to finish first first you have to finish yeah in other words if you work on the car as best you can and it finishes that's half the battle won okay so you have yep you know yeah so so you have all sorts of people behind the scenes or as i jokingly call it the less glamorous side of motorsport the drivers get all the glory by being you know the the head of the, the most visible part of uh, the team but they have people like race engineers designers team managers pretty much anything you can think associated with the car and uh, as we'll no doubt get on to very shortly um, I've had the privilege of uh, getting involved in it to a certain extent if I want to become an F1 driver tomorrow, how does it start? What age do you have to start it? What things do you have to do? 
what's the process um well in terms of driving aspect um usually the drivers these days they start they, they start racing in go-karts from a very early age about four or five years old so they've already got their instincts in working order by the time they graduate to car racing uh usually in their mid to late teens there are a few exceptions to the rule (laughs) max verstappen (laughs) um i'll get onto that in just a moment for context but usually but there are all sorts of uh junior series as they call it if it's Formula One that they're interested in, we'll we'll use the the ladder for Formula One as the example for this context. Yeah. So the lowest rung of car racing are usually things like Formula Renault. So they're basically Formula cars in that they're open wheel, open cockpit cars. In other words, what I mean by open wheel is you see the wheel in its entirety, even the top of the tire, compared to a a ordinary road car which is a closed wheel car where you can't see the top of the tire but you can see the sides sides of the tire and the wheel as such um then usually the next step up a series like formula three yeah which are more powerful than formula renault as you would expect and it gives the drivers the first experience of downforce or for simplification purposes a negative lift in other words you see the wings on the cars when you'll notice they're the opposite way round to aircraft wings so in other words whereas an aircraft wing is there to help the aircraft fly the wings on race cars whether it's GT cars or formula cars they're there to push the car down more than just the mass of the car itself. So in other words, they can corner much more quickly. You know, to just know how these things work is quite interesting. Tell us about how it's being on a racetrack. In terms of actually being at the racetrack, obviously with the great British weather that we have, you never know what to expect. <laughs> um, sometimes it can be blisteringly hot sometimes it can be rainy or if we include the very first time that i was actually at a racetrack with a team uh british rallycross more on that later um it was snowing and icy so (laughs) very cold indeed (laughs) but in terms of the what it's actually like working there aside from the predictably unpredictable weather it's a fast-paced environment. What do I mean by that? Well, basically, that it it depends on split-second decisions. An example would be when I was on placement with a British rallycross team based in Scotland called Albertech Racing. When we were at round two of the 2018 British Rallycross Championship at Lydon Hill in Kent Uh, the weather was changing it had been raining the morning of race day but it was drying out throughout the day and I was not going into the garages of 
rival teams, but peering in from outside their garages to see what tyres they were fitting. So we were deciding whether to fit wet weather tyres, in other words, tyres that can clear water from the track surface to uh, help the car grip the racetrack uh, by, in effect, digging into the water effectively, or choosing the opposite, which are dry weather tyres, which lay more rubber on the track surface, which enable the car to theoretically have more cornering speeds in dry conditions but in wet conditions conversely it would leave the car with less grip and sliding all over the place so it was a touch and go situation and one which happily we came out on top that particular weekend by the sound of it it's just too many complications what is next for you well I'm in some ways inspired by Formula One commentator, legendary Formula One commentator, Murray Walker. Um, he was known for many years as, quote, the voice of Formula One. Yeah. Um, he became famous for his very excitable way of commentating. Because yeah. the way he commentated, he would... Whereas the other commentator next to him would sit down and look at the monitor, he would stand up and bounce around for a bit of hyperbole there. Um, he would bounce around excited on the balls of his feet, uh, looking at the amazing action that was going on in front of him. And he would famously say that he makes prophecies about what would happen and those prof prophetic remarks turn out to be wrong. And he would joke about it. Um, I remember one time he was waxing lyrical about uh, I mentioned Damon Hill earlier how he was his winning the world championship in 1996 got me interested in Formula One and there was a race where Damon Hill was doing very well in his otherwise underwhelming title defence year 1997 um, and he was like and Damon Hill is in fifth position blah 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 And then about a minute later, he was like, and Hill stopped. Oh, as I say it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Simon, you cannot see me, but I, I'm totally in hysterics, you know. <laughs> It's just... It is, it, is, it is quite funny, you know. So are you saying that commentary is next for you? Um, That's what I'd like to try, certainly, because... To use a uh, non-commentary based thing that Murray Walker said uh, when coverage of Formula One was at the, at the time making the switch from the BBC to ITV for exclusive TV co coverage. This was back in 1997. He said a line which I think is quite pertinent. He said, those who can do and those who can't talk about it. In his case, he was referring to his desire to match his father's ability on motorbikes. His father yeah. was a multiple winner of the Isle of Man Tourist Trophy, or Isle of Man SP, yeah. as, as it's uh, colloquially known. That's hard to say. Um, uh, but he quickly realized that his ability on motorbikes was not going to live up to his father. So 
he turned his attention to commentating. So his first commentary was in motorbike racing. And of course, over time, the vehicles he was commentating on doubled the amount of wheels from two to four. So <laughs> he gained the reputation from there. Passion you have for motorsports is just, it's amazing to see. And who's your all-time uh, favorite racer? in the F1 and who's your current favourite? Oh, you got me there. That's a terrific question. Um, <laughs> in terms of all time, despite the fact that he had been gone about 21 years by the time I was born, my all-time favourite F1 driver would probably have to be two-time world champion and 1965 Indianapolis 500 winner, Jim Clark. Why, why, you're probably thinking, why him? Well, uh, why not Michael Schumacher? Why not, you know, Lewis Hamilton? Or, you know, why not Fernando Alonso? There's so many. The thing about Jim Clark and the thing that was so refreshing about his attitude that I found out in a chance encounter with a documentary about him that aired a few years ago. Unlike other drive, unlike modern drivers who are really arrogant about their ability, Jim Clark was humble about his ability. Indeed, he had no confidence in his own ability. So he trusted the team. He trusted the engineers. He trusted the well, not, tire men. He tr- well, not so much that. I mean, he did. The- he did have trust in the team, but he needed a push from his friends to realise his own ability. Indeed, when he was club racing in Scotland, he asked a friend of his why everyone was driving so slowly. And it was his friend who responded to him and, excuse the language if anyone finds one of the words he said offensive, but bear with me. What What his friend said to him afterwards in indignation was something like, Jim, it's not the others are driving slowly, it's you going so bloody fast. And that was the push he needed to realise his own ability. And ultimately, he became at the time the most successful driver ever, breaking the legendary Juan Manuel Fangio, five-time world champion, uh, his win tally. Because Fangio had 24 wins in his career and Clark broke it with 25, but that was the most it ever got before he was uh, tragically killed in a Formula 2 race in 1968. And the, the beautiful thing about watching what footage exists of him driving is how undramatic it looks. If you ignore the primitive safety measures that existed back then, I've, in fact, I mentioned about the primitive safety measures of the 1960s in my dissertation from last year. and got a first in it as well, just saying. <laughs> um, the... His driving style was really smooth. He wasn't overly aggressive with the steering wheel, and there was there was sound of him commenting on his driving style. He said, "I don't drive any harder. I just concentrate harder, which makes me go faster." You know, quite interesting. And you know, I would not have any doubts that you would get a first <laughs> in this subject. I, I, it's, it's genuinely been a pleasure talking to you, but you have not still told me about who's your current favorite. Like, 
do you have a favorite at the moment um i wouldn't necessarily say i have a favorite but i do have a soft spot for one of the current drivers on the grid uh, Louis Hamilton, come on, it's, he's British. He's British, yes, and I, naturally as a Brit, I, it, it is nice to see a British driver up at the top more often than not. But as a racer, it's also, as a fan of racing, I should say, it's uh, even I can see it can get quite boring seeing the same person winning all the time. So when you have someone like Pierre Gasly, a man who had a horrendous 18 months prior to him unexpectedly winning the Italian Grand Prix last year in a car that's not even a front-running car was such a great feel-good story. Because he... Because prior to that day, he was promoted to the senior Red Bull racing team was comprehensively outperformed by his teammate, Max Verstappen. You know, it it was getting to the point where it was almost as though they were running different races. That's how badly Gasly was struggling, excuse me, in Red Bull Racing. He was demoted to what's in effect the junior Red Bull team Uh, to try and rebuild his confidence back. And then just over a year later, uh, through through some opportunism by a combination of a safety car being deployed and a red flag, red flag basically meaning the race is stopped, uh, Gasly ended up taking his very first victory by less than a second at... uh, what, what F1 fans call the Temple of Speed, uh, the Autodromo Nazionale di Monza, which I'm going to in 2019, just saying. Would it be fair to call you a motorsport fanatic? Absolutely. I make no bones about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just great to see your passion, how you struggle through, you know, the general time at GCSEs and getting a first in the university. It's been it's been quite a journey.